This is Psych Wine and Pop Culture. I'm Dr. Heather. I have a PhD in psychology. And I'm a professor in Southern California. And I'm Kristen, former news reporter and grad student in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. Join us for a glass of wine, providing a psychological perspective on popular TV shows and movies. And candid conversations about mental health. This podcast is not meant to replace or supplement medical advice from a health practitioner. This podcast is meant for educational purposes only. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Psych, Wine, and Pop Culture. I'm Kristen. And I'm Dr. Heather. So we should start off this episode with some life updates. It's not a very happy one, but you still wanted to share it, right, Heather? Yeah, yeah. So I did post on Instagram, or I know Kristen posted for me that I was taking my licensing exam as one of the parts to get licensed as a clinical psychologist, and unfortunately, I did not pass. So I have to retake it. If it was easy, I feel like everyone would be a psychologist, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I would say that the hardest part is honestly the language to me. You have to guess what they're trying to say. There's like words that I've never heard of, like personomy, personomy or something like that. I'm like, I don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> it's not well, even psychology. <laughs> I know. It's like they want you to have an English degree as well as a psychology degree or something. So I'd say that's my weaknesses. But I will say that, I mean, I'll just tell you guys, I mean, to get... A passing score, you have to get a 500, and I got a 455, so I was close, but I still didn't pass. Well, you know, the second time you'll take it, you'll be better prepared, and you'll know exactly, like, well, you'll know more of what to expect, I think. At the same time, like, I want to remind you that I would go back, and I would listen to, you know, previous episodes and stuff, and you would talk about this test, and it was, you know, hypothetical. It was before you took it. So you're very positive, you know, you were you were practicing a lot of self-compassion, a lot of self-positive talk, and mm -hmm. you were just so, like, optimistic. I, I hope that you still go into the second one with the same kind of optimism, but you have a really good support system around you. So, I mean, you know, I'm here for you, your husband's there for you, your mom's there for you. So I think when you take it the second time, I think it'll be good. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I will pass it eventually. If it takes me two, three, four, five times, I'm going to pass this bitch. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't care how long it takes. <laughs> it will cost me some money. That's the unfortunate part. You have to pay every time you take it. But, I, you know, I'm confident. I went into it confident as well. And, you know, it just didn't happen. And I will say, yeah, I was upset after. But, you know, it took me a couple days, to be honest, to get back on track and, now I feel a lot better. Well, I mean, I still think it's really brave that you are open and honest and you share not only your achievements, but also, you know, times that you struggle on this podcast, because I'm sure that we have listeners that look up to you and see you as, you know, a Latina who is pursuing higher education and find you as an inspiration. And sometimes I think it's important to know that you know, people that we look at and we just assume, oh, they're super successful, like that they struggle too. And they don't always pass important tests and stuff like that because you're still inspirational. 
Well, I appreciate that. And I do want to let anybody know who is listening that just because you fail something doesn't mean that you're not going to fix or get to that goal that you need to get to. You know, it just means that now you have a barrier and you have to climb over that barrier. And eventually it may take some time, but you're going to climb up and you will reach it. So just don't lose sight and stay positive. See, you need to say that to yourself. I know. I have been, but it's hard because I... (laughs) It's like, I, I hate to say this, but it's like going through a death. <laughs> There's like days where I'm okay. And I'm just like, yeah, I didn't pass. I'm okay. I'm going to take this test again. And there's days where I just like cry. And I'm like, ah, I can't believe I didn't pass. But Aww. it happens. It's a grieving process. I have all the faith in you. I know your mentor does. Everyone does around you. Well, thank you. So did you want to get into our actual topic for today? Yes. Oh, we've been looking forward to this episode for a while. So in this episode, we're covering the portrayal of addiction in the 2020 Netflix miniseries, The Queen's Gambit. Yes, I'm so excited to do this episode with you. So for The Queen's Gambit, we're definitely going to cover on one of the major themes of addiction. So we'll define addiction. We'll also look into some of the drugs that she was taking, as well as we'll talk about some models of behavior change with addiction and how her social support system either helped her or did not help her become a recovering addict. Well, there you go. Okay, so let's get into the summary of The Queen's Gambit in case there are some people who have not watched the show. You really, really need to. It's critically acclaimed. It's nominated for all kinds of awards for its performances and a lot more than that. So it's a really, really Mm -hmm. good show. We have been wanting to talk about the topic of addiction for a while now, and I feel like this is the perfect show to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I got a couple of summaries from Rotten Tomatoes and a website called The Focus. Based on the novel by Walter Tevis, the Netflix limited series drama The Queen's Gambit is a coming-of-age story that explores the true cost of genius. Abandoned and entrusted to a Kentucky orphanage in the late 1950s, a young Beth Harmon, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, discovers an astonishing talent for chess while developing an addiction to tranquilizers provided by the state as a sedative for the children. Haunted by her personal demons and fueled by a cocktail of narcotics and obsession, Beth transforms into an impressively skilled and glamorous outcast while determined to conquer the traditional boundaries established in the male-dominated world of competitive chess. Wow. Isn't that a great summary? You just want, I would want to like read it, watch it. You know, it just sounds so good. <laughs> I know, right? So this is what I found from The Focus. Unfolding the young genius trope. I don't even know what that means. See, they got weird words in here, just like your test. The show, yeah, what is a trope? <laughs> I don't know what the fuck that is. The show follows the story of Beth Harmon and her introduction to chess by the orphanage's janitor, Mr. Scheibel. Mr. Scheibel spots Beth's natural ability for the game and teaches her all the ins and outs. Before she knows it, Beth is even dreaming of chess and soon becomes a chess prodigy. Throughout the Queen's Gambit, viewers watch Beth grow up and go from prodigy to grandmaster with all the struggles such a journey entails. So those struggles we're talking about here is addiction. One of them is anyway. Mm-hmm. So before we get into our wine, you want to share a little bit about the actress who plays the character Beth. Give us some trivia knowledge. <laughs> yeah, well, so what's interesting about the actress who plays Beth Anya Taylor-Joy. She's 24 years old. Her first language is Spanish. Did you know that? 
Well, I mean, you did tell me, so now oh. I know. But I know I was shocked when you first told me. I was like, what? She speaks Spanish? Wow, that's so cool. Right. So, you know, obviously you see her. She's a huera. You're like, okay, so how does she know Spanish? I mean, Latinas do come in all shapes, sizes, and colors, right? But <laughs> so she was born in Miami, and she moved with her parents uh, to Argentina when she was an infant. And then she lived there until she was six. And then they moved to England after that, where she learned English at the age of eight. And she mentioned in, in, in interviews that she missed Argentina so much that she refused to learn English when she was in England for two years because she thought that not knowing English would allow her to go back home. But that never happened. Aww. Yeah, I know, right? So she did learn English, English and guess how she learned English? Watching TV shows. Well, specifically, I thought you would love this. Watching and reading Harry Potter. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is my shit right there. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I know that's your shit. So, yeah, growing up, I mean, that's why she kind of like when she speaks English, she has a little bit of an English accent. Um, so her parents, her mom is actually English and Spanish. And then her hmm. dad is Scottish and Argentinian. Wow. Yeah, and then I have one more interesting fact for you. What? <laughs> Her mom's a psychologist. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she's like, wow. She's got it all going on. She's multicultural. She's lived in many different countries. And she has a psychologist for a mom. She's an actress. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, she was a model, too, and a ballerina. <gasps> wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I figure. I mean, she was really tall. You I mean, you can tell in the show that she's pretty tall, but she's 5'8". Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Very cool. All right. So let's get into our wine. Okay. So who should go first? Well, I want to get mine over with because I am not a big fan of my wine today. Oh, okay. You start us off in a negative note, <laughs> I see. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sorry, guys. I just want to knock it out because I know that you guys aren't gonna like it so but it's a warning for everyone this is my official PSA my public service announcement I would not I repeat I would not recommend I will not <laughs> recommend Kim Crawford's Sauvignon Blanc it is let's see it's 70 calories so you know that is what drew me to it at first I saw it at Target you know I'm not the kind of person who even though I love fitness and everything I don't count my calories but I mm -hmm. picked this wine because I was I was just drawn to it because I saw you know it was less calories so I wanted to know if wines that have less calories like do, do they taste any different that's all yeah. I really wanted to know okay you know me right first thing I always check is the alcohol percentage mm -hmm. I know that <laughs> Yeah, I didn't do that this time. I was, I felt, like, oh. yeah, I, I felt like such an idiot. Like I was, you know, in and out of Target. I can't believe I didn't check it. What is it like two percent? <laughs> Just kidding. I'm playing. I'm playing. <laughs> well, close. Seven percent. Seven. Seven yeah. fucking percent. What is that grape juice gonna do to you? Nothing. It's kind of like beer, right? Beer is like that. No, I still feel like I get more buzzed with beer than I do wow. with this. So again, this is the Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc, 70 calories per serving. 
When I taste it, supposedly it's supposed to taste like passion fruit and guava. Honestly, it tastes like you squeezed a bunch of green grapes into a cup and then you sprinkled like fake sugar on it. Like what's the fake sugar called? Like Splenda? Oh, yeah. Splenda. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what it tastes like. Wow. Well, I think some people might like that, honestly. <laughs> I kind of do because they kind of don't like the bitter taste of wine or they don't like, you know, they like to taste the grapeiness more so. Well, so maybe for those of you who like less bitter wine, you might like this one. I don't know. Well, Sauvignon Blancs are usually never bitter, which is why I love them. This yeah. one is just not very good. Am I going to drink it? Yes, of course I'm going to drink it. I bought it. I'm not going to waste it, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to enjoy well, it very much, but anyway. So what what do you have? I hope you have something better than me. Well, I haven't tried it yet, but it comes with like a little story that I'll tell you. Hold on. Okay, so first off, the wine is called Rabble. And I'm showing the picture to Kristen. I'll also post a picture on Instagram of the wine bottle. It's beautiful. But basically, I know, it's really crazy looking, and I'll tell you why I picked it. <laughs> oh, that looks like a fire or little like a little town is on fire or something there's like hell raining over the town ding 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 so that is correct so basically it looks like a little citadel um but like of a italian town i don't know it's like it just looks like very italian to me but it's basically in fire and why did i pick this is because i feel like this is a symbolic representation of being an addict or having a drug addiction it's like you don't have any control of what's going on that i love that you put extra thought into the wine that you picked that's awesome so yeah definitely i will post a picture of it but it is a red wine and it's from paso robles and again it's called rabble and the other interesting thing about this wine is that if you look at the back of the wine bottle they have an app for the wine and i had to try it out because i was like why does this wine bottle have an app Okay, that's dope. Yeah, so basically when you download the app and then you put your camera from the app, it actually shows like a story that plays out in this little picture here. <gasps> Shut up. The picture that's on the label? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, so then what happened? So basically it's an, an illustration that comes alive on your phone. And basically it's just like a little one, little illustration. Everything looks all calm. Everything's green and blue. And then out of nowhere, thunderstorm clouds come in and the thunderstorm creates fires in the city and nobody's able to control it. Wow, that is so just like different. I never would have thought of that. Like that the marketers or whatever, like advertisers. Yeah. That's an interesting thing to do. And, you know, like, here's what I'm thinking. Maybe I'm thinking too deep into this, but you have to really trust that people who buy your wine will go through with this because that's a lot to invest in. That's a lot of work to invest in to create that little animation that you're talking about. I totally agree with you. And I love it. And I love the extraness of this wine. <laughs> <laughs> But let's go ahead and try it first, actually. So <laughs> I do love the bottle. I love the whole thing. So hopefully it tastes good. Yeah, I hope it lives up to, you know, all the advertising work that they did. It would suck if the wine didn't taste good. And then let me see. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, guys. So let's see. It smells like a deep red. You know, I feel like this is a really full body. It's like a, it kind of tastes like a blend to me. And I guess because it doesn't say what type it is, I think it is a blend, actually. It just says red wine. 
Oh, yeah. It doesn't give specific, like, if it's a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Petite Syrah. So I definitely think it's a blend, for sure. It doesn't tell you the grapes, the varietals? It doesn't. Okay. Nope. It doesn't say it. But what I get from it is it tastes like a Cabernet Sauvignon because those are a little bit dry on the palate. I kind of like drinking those sometimes. And sometimes they have, like, blackberry notes. Sometimes they're a little bit smoky. I wouldn't say this one is terribly smoky, but it's just very smooth to the palate. So I would say this is an okay wine. I'm not like crazy about it, but they do have other wines like white wines that I want to try and I want to see what their white wines taste like. I mean, I guess like if you really wanted to and you saw the bottle in the store, you could just download the app real quick and then see the little animation. It's not like you have to buy it, right, first. That's true. That's kind of fucked up, though. <laughs> I know, right? Why did I give everyone that idea? <laughs> no. no, I think it's definitely worth it. I think it's it's pretty good. I guess, you know, it just depends on, you know, what you're feeling that day. I think for a red, it's like at a 10, it's probably like a 7. Well, I still feel like that's a pretty strong score considering that Mm -hmm. i just went ahead and poured myself another glass of this grape juice wannabe wine (laughs) whatever your cider (laughs) (laughs) even cider would be stronger than this to be honest god that's hilarious (laughs) okay well let's get into the topic all righty i just took a sip while you said that so let's go it is a little weird that we're drinking wine on an episode about addiction when the main character is an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, I thought about that. But if you guys listened to our other episode where we covered A Star is Born and Suicide Warnings, we briefly talked about um, addiction in that episode. And we did drink wine on that episode as well. But I think with anything, like if you have like an eating you know, addiction or smoking addiction or drinking addiction, everything's in moderation. So obviously on this episode, we're not going to get trashed. You know, we're drinking in moderation. We're being, you know, responsible. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of the takeaway. You always know the right thing to say. How do you know? I wish that's like a fucking talent when you like know what to say in like whatever scenario. I feel like you always come up with something. I'm like, I feel bad about this. And then you're like, wait, hold up. Think about it for a second. And then I'm like, oh, okay, you're right. That makes sense. Yeah, well, I think you're right, though. We we should kind of cover that. And it makes total sense. But at the same time, you know, this is a wine podcast. So we will have wine on our episodes. (laughs) Yep, that's true. So I feel like it would be important first to actually define addiction, you know, just to officially define it, you know, like, I feel like we kind of all know what it is. We know, we know of it. But it's always helpful whenever you provide more of like a professional definition to things like that. Okay. So it's kind of a a long answer, I guess, when it comes to defining addiction. But several like psychology articles and psychology textbooks have several definitions. So compiling it all together, there's just some major themes when it comes to addiction. So one of the things when you're defining addiction is a person is engaging in negative behaviors or engaging in negative reactions to other people's when they're continuously engaging in the drug use. So that would be like, you know, if I'm drinking a lot and then I kind of, you know, go off on my spouse or partner for no reason, right? Or maybe I continuously drink and I'm not able to go to work. Those are maladaptive or negative behaviors where that behavior is affecting how I function. Mm -hmm. The other thing also is craving. 
also another aspect of defining addiction is when a person just has that intense feeling of they need that substance or they can't live without it, they rely on it. And typically, whenever they crave it so much, usually that affects their surrounding environment. So their social relationships start to deteriorate, you know, family relationships and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then finally, um, when someone is um, struggling with addiction, they will experience tolerance and withdrawal. So tolerance, I'm sure you guys heard of it before, but this is where someone needs more of the drug to get that desired effect. So especially with what we're seeing in the Queen's Gambit, she takes more and more pills to get the desired effect. So she develops a tolerance over time. And then also people go through withdrawals when they don't have the drug. So usually it's kind of physiological, but also psychological. They have like sweating, um, they pant, they have anxiety attacks, their stomach hurts when they don't have access to the drug. And then the psychological is back to anxiety or sometimes they're angry when they don't get the drug. Yeah, I feel like I've seen a lot of these things portrayed in movies and different shows and stuff. Um, one that I can think of that, um, you know, I was thinking about originally, okay, we're going to cover addiction. What show should we do? And I was thinking mm -hmm. about Euphoria from HBO. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big one. Yeah, so I definitely see a lot of these things that you're talking about in the main character of Euphoria, Rue, who's played by Zendaya. Mm -hmm. Yep, especially in that show, she goes through withdrawal. You see her do that as well. It's a very unpleasant experience. So, Okay, so we know what addiction is now. What actually happens, you know, in the brain of the person who's struggling with addiction? Because you mentioned a desired effect. What uh -huh. is that effect? Like what is chemically happening in the brain when a person who's struggling with addiction takes their drug of choice? Yeah, so that's why addiction is such a hard thing to overcome because our brain is being affected by whatever drug that we're choosing. So when, let's say, you know, if it's alcohol, for example, and you enjoy the effects of alcohol, there's this um, neurotransmitter called dopamine in our brain that's basically like the pleasure neurotransmitter. It makes us feel euphoric. Everything is great. We feel happy. It's just like that pleasure reward center in the pathways of the brain. So basically, whenever we're taking that drug, there's an excess of dopamine. So you feel all those pleasurable feelings. So in a way, taking the drug and then you have the dopamine reinforces that behavior of taking the drug. So that's why it's so difficult to overcome addiction because of that cycle. Do you think that that is like directly related to maybe the reason why people who struggle with addiction reach out for a drug? Maybe they're going through something and then that drug kind of helps relieve some pain that they're going through. Yeah, so there's a lot of theories on why people engage in drug use, but some of them could be that, you know, they don't want to feel pain, either emotional or physical pain. So they take a drug to kind of avoid that or to not think about certain things. Um, sometimes, you know, it could have to do with environmental factors. You know, if you're feeling you know, very down about something, maybe you use it as a coping skill. Mm. I mean, it is a coping skill. It's just not a positive coping skill. Let's talk about Beth's first experience with drugs. So I got this from Oprah Magazine. We love Oprah, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
So Walter Tevis incorporated his struggle with addiction into The Queen's Gambit. So remember I talked about earlier, the series is based on a book and Walter Tevis Mm -hmm. is the author of that book. So as a girl in the orphanage, Beth develops an addiction to a fictionalized sedative called Zanzlolam. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, It's okay. So it's, I mean, it's a fictional sedative anyway. So it's this little green pill that you see her take. Actually, all the kids take them. They take like two different types of pills. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is the green one. So if you guys remember from this show, her friend Jolene tells her to take it only around bedtime because it would make her really drowsy. So I think Mm -hmm. that's how we kind of come to the realization that this is, you know, like a tranquilizer of some sort. But going back to the author, for this aspect of her character, Tevis drew from his own experiences with drugs. And he says, quote, when I was young, I was diagnosed as having a rheumatic heart and given heavy drug doses in a hospital. That's where Beth's drug dependency comes from in the novel. And that's what Tevis told the New York Times in 1983. Very interesting. Very interesting. I really like the fact that the author has personal experience with it. So you can really kind of dive deep into what it is like for the character. Yeah, exactly. I feel like it's more authentic, you know, in a way. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Beth's first encounter with drugs begins at the age of nine when she lives in the orphanage in Kentucky. Before that, Beth had already experienced some serious childhood traumas. Her mother was mentally ill and her parents separated when she was really young. Beth's mom was so overcome with emotional and financial struggles caring for Beth, so she reached out to Beth's father for help. He already moved on with another family, and this sent Beth's mom over the edge. This drove her to attempt suicide, driving a car with Beth in the back, and they go head-on straight into another car on a two-way stretch of road. Yeah. Beth survives, but her mother doesn't. That's pretty crazy. Like That was like the first scene. You're like, what? what's going on? <laughs> yeah, you don't really know what happens until later on. Mm-hmm. I think it's the, like the last episode that Beth finally, rem- you know, allows us, the audience, to see what happened. And that's when you finally mm-hmm. realize, oh, shit, your mom tried to kill you both. Yeah. It's yeah. just so tragic and sad. It's sad because neither of her parents wanted her. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I don't know. I just, I feel for her. I really do. Because she essentially doesn't have anyone. She doesn't have any... Extended family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so then she ends up in this orphanage. And, you know, I think it's kind of easy to get lost in the shuffle. At least I'm coming from the perspective of working. I used to work in a nonprofit that helped foster children. And I would kind of see, you know, I've seen in real life similar struggles that Beth experienced and it's really sad and at that time I mean it was the 1950s nobody knew how to k- take care of kids who didn't have parents you know this yeah, is it was kind of like you take care of yourself type of mentality I was kind of hoping that maybe you would tell us a little bit more about this green pill that was given to her at the orphanage and then maybe some of her childhood trauma like kind of break that down for us okay So when I first saw the green pills, 
in the orphanage, I was like, you know, those look familiar. I wonder if this is an actual drug. Obviously, you stated that the name that they use in the show is a fictional name, right? But when I looked it up, if you're talking about a green pill that has those effects on a person, it's actually a benzodiazepine. Okay, and you're like, what the hell is that, right? Yeah, I'm like, what? Okay. <laughs> Have you heard of, like, people saying benzos? You never heard that before? Or is- yeah, I, I have, but I don't know what it means. So basically, benzodiazepines are in a larger class of drugs that are called sedative narcotics. And there's two types. There's barbiturates, and then you have your benzos. So the particular one that I researched, and I found that was green, and it had the similar effects as in the show, is actually called Librium. And basically, it makes you feel calm. Um, You can fall asleep very easily. And also, it's hypnotic in a way where it kind of messes with like your perceptions in a way. Hypnotic? Is that what you said? Hypnotic. Where it messes with your perceptions. Mm-hmm. That actually like really eerily sounds like that pill because remember how when Beth would take them after she would have little sessions playing chess with Mr. Scheibel, she mm-hmm. would go to sleep at night and she would be in her room and she would look up at the ceiling and she would imagine this chessboard. And then she would imagine, oh, okay, this is how I should move next time. Like, she would think about her strategies. And this is after she would take those green pills. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. So that's definitely what was kind of going on there. And just another way without drugs, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but I thought it was interesting. Like, have you ever tried to fall asleep and then you have, like, this sensation that you're falling? Yes. Yeah, so it's like because you're drowsy, right? You're falling into this like sleep and you start to feel drowsy. Well, in a way, that's kind of what the drug does. It makes you feel drowsy and your perceptions are a little bit lower. So you may feel something that's not necessarily there. So in a way, the drug mimics those things. So you could see, for example, you know, a chessboard or something that's really not there. Whoa. Oh, my God. Crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. So I just want to give a little bit of a history of benzos. I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but I just thought it was interesting because I'm like, when did they happen? So interestingly, um, they were more popular in the United States during the Great Depression, which is not a surprise if you think about it. Mm, People were going through some shit (laughs) and they needed some meds. I'm not trying to make light of the situation, but there was a lot of barbiturates that were being prescribed during this time. And just kind of to help Americans take the edge off of, you know, all this financial and social stressors going on at the time. So then um, after that time period of Great Depression, then we get into World War II. Americans were consuming just so many barbiturates per year, and we really didn't know the effects of it at this time. So doctors and pharmacists were stating that it was free. I mean, that it was free from having any harmful side effects, so that it was safe to take. And, you know, you could just use it as a sleeping aid, you know, to help you take the edge off. And unfortunately, we found through time that there actually was a pretty big side effect, and a lot of people became dependent on it. Wait, wait, wait. Back up, back up. So doctors, pharmacists, medical professionals mm-hmm. are just willingly like just barbiturates for everyone. You get a barbiturate. You get a barbiturate. <laughs> everyone gets a barbiturate. And yeah, what the fuck? And it's just like normal. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's why today, whenever we have drugs, they have to go through drug trials. We have to see what all the side effects are. We can't just give a drug without knowing its actual intended effects, even over a long period of time. So it was crazy. So finally, in 1951, Congress passed a law requiring a doctor's approval to get access to these types of drugs. So then there was kind of like this... I guess not lockdown, but there's more red flags to get to these types of drugs. And finally, um, the one that we're actually talking about here, Librium, that I believe that's what's being portrayed in the show, that was around 1955. And in 1960, that's where you see it hit more in the United States. Mm. And it continued to gain popularity. It had the calming effect of you know releasing anxiety and even some people called it um trying to think of the word for it it was like the mother's helper the mother's helper yeah have you heard of this or no no yeah a lot of benzodiazepines and also librium were called the mother's helper because they were prescribed to a lot of housewives (gasps) (laughs) oh yo what the fuck this is like Oh my god, you remember that movie? Well, of course you would, because you love Leonardo DiCaprio, but when when Leo and Kate Winslet made their, you know, they reunited on screen, right? The reader? No, 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 no. She was, the reader was the one by herself, the one that she finally won the Oscar for. The one that Mm. she did with Leo was Revolutionary Road. Revolutionary Road, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They were married, and it was, like, I think in the 50s or 60s, and it really, like, portrayed the depression that, like, the housewife would go through, and then the, even the husband being, like, the breadwinner, and it's, like, I don't know, mm-hmm. in, like, the suburban neighborhood, but this is such crazy shit. You know what, though? Like, when Beth gets adopted, she goes into, like, one of those typical households, you know, where yeah. there's a the mom. The man works. Yep, a mom and a dad, and uh, the dad works, the mom stays home, she's the housewife, and she takes these little green pills, and then Beth's like, oh, those look familiar. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, because I was definitely going to say that. So you definitely even see this portrayal of the mother's helper in The Queen's Gambit. When do you think that Beth shows her, I don't know, like the first sign of addiction, Okay, so the first time that Beth shows signs of addiction, I'm going to say it's pretty early, but she goes to excessive measures in the first couple episodes. I don't know which episode quite, but she basically breaks into the pharmacy in the orphanage and takes the whole canister of the green pills. And she just takes a bunch, like right after that. Then she passes out. I'm like, okay, this girl has some with tolerance and also craving for that drug in that episode yeah you can definitely see that because I remember them being you know like all the kids that gathered them to watch a movie and she was Mm -hmm. very calculated she was very strategic you know she had tools she had tools (laughs) she was planning she was plotting she knew I need this fucking drug I need it now Mm-hmm. And she has to break into the little pharmacy, like you said. She goes in there. And when she grabs those pills, when she finally gets a hold of them, you think, okay, well, maybe she's just going to put, you know, a few in her pocket. She kind of starts out like that. Save some for later, whatever. Mm-hmm. No. She's, like, eating them like candy. She's shoving them in her face, popping them like M&Ms. 
And then, yeah, and then she stands on the chair afterwards. She gets caught. Everybody all comes to the pharmacy because they realize, like, oh, someone went over there and broke in. And then Mm -hmm. she just falls from the chair and passes out. So, my God. You're right. That is is a really good depiction of it. But I definitely think that was the first time you realize, like, oh, this, this little girl has a problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And even if you want to go back a little further than that, I think she was like asking her friends, specifically Jolene, and she's like, hey, do you have any more of those green pills stashed away? And like, no, she didn't have any. And then you could see her like during lunchtime, like she's super agitated. You know, she, she you could see her going through withdrawals too before. And that's when she was like, you know what? I need that drug. How can I get those pills by myself? I love Jolene because first of all, she's like the first person of color you see. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I am like, okay, she's going to be an interesting character because she's very like spunky. Mm -hmm. And although, you know, she has her own set of trauma too, she doesn't necessarily react or develop the same dependency for those green pills that Mm -mm. Beth does. Which goes into risk factors, right? Risk factors. Yeah. I feel like Jolene has her own set of issues, but she doesn't quite see those green pills as a way to, like, save her the same way that Beth does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she doesn't use it to kind of avoid things or not feel something. I mean, she does it because that's what they're giving them, basically. Yeah. And she kind of did go through withdrawals herself. I mean, anybody who takes those type of drugs can go withdrawals. But even after they stopped taking them, she was fine. She was like, oh, no, I don't really need them. So... So the question mm-hmm. is, like, why did she not get addicted? Is that what you're asking? I mean, kind of, yeah. Basically, there's this really common theory in psychology, and it's called the diathesis stress model, and it basically talks about what we're talking about here. And another way to say this is also stress vulnerability model as well. So what the theory is, is basically when we're talking about diathesis or vulnerability, it means that diathesis is going into how many risk factors does someone have that can contribute to having like a condition, specifically a mental health condition. So the more risk factors you have, it's going to make you more vulnerable to in the future having some mental health condition, either if it's PTSD, addiction, anxiety, depression. Yes, genetics do play a role. So you could have genetics that predispose you to have an addiction or to have PTSD, but that's not the only factor. It's also the environment and how the environment affects those genes turning on. So the environment, for example, could be trauma, which really is shown in the show a lot. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, the more trauma someone has, you know, how they perceive the trauma, even growing up in poverty, um, having parents who are also addicts could also be potential environmental factors that affect those genes to turn on. And I feel that, unfortunately, I think um, Beth, you know, she had a lot of trauma in her life. And we don't know the full story with Jolene, you know, so we can't say what other factors she experienced. But I think it has a lot to do with the environment with Beth and how she continued to have an addiction through a good portion of her young life. So before we go into this another topic, I know you talked about like someone who's actually a real movie star that experienced, you know, drug use at an early age. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how this relates to the Queen's Gambit? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll briefly talk about it. So uh, someone's story really reminded me of Beth. And that was Drew Barrymore. So I feel like our generation, you know, we see Drew Barrymore. We see her as this actress who's kind of like, you know, America's sweetheart. We've uh-huh. seen her in like The Wedding Singer. That's my favorite Drew Barrymore movie of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Never Been Kissed. That was 50 First Dates. 50 First Dates. Yeah. Like she's in a lot of stuff. Um, I even love uh, the Santa Clarita Diet. That was like. Mm, that's good. I love that one. Damn, Netflix. Why did they have to cancel it? It was such a good show. Oh, they did? Yeah. Yeah. Oh and it was gosh. It was really, really getting good. So, but anyways, it was a hilarious it was a hilarious show. So I don't think that I think people have like really forgotten what her childhood was like. But Drew Barrymore was a child actress and she got famous for being in the movie E.T. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know she was very young. And I read in, in an article from The Guardian that by the age of seven, she was like pouring Bailey's liqueur over her ice cream. What? Yeah. Okay. Did not know that. Yeah. So she really struggled with addiction when she was little, specifically with alcohol. I don't know. I, she said, you know, that her dad was very absent. Um, mm-hmm. her, her mom just wasn't the best parental figure you know, would take her to parties. She'd be around a lot of adults who would consume drugs and alcohol. And then, you know, children, they mimic behavior that they see. And Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, one thing led to another. And she even attempted suicide by by the age of 12. And that's what kind of caused her mom to put her into a, a mental health facility. I think by the age of 14, she eman- she like legally emancipated herself from her parents. Wow, that is insane. I mean, I, I knew a little bit about that, but you know, it's kind of crazy to think that you know you can be addicted to something that young. And it's a true story. Like in the Queen's Gambit, we see you know very similar parallels. And Drew Barrymore is a great example of how that can happen at a young age. I'm just glad that we have Drew Barrymore today. You know, like I'm glad that she wasn't overcome by her struggles because I really admire her, you know, as like a person who overcame addiction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And her own mental health, you know, obviously, you know, there's other things going on, you know, maybe depression and, and obviously she's doing a lot better, at least from what we're seeing. So that's good to see. Yeah, totally. So I do want to talk a little bit about behavior change processes related to addiction. When you say behavior change processes, does that mean just like the way that addiction affects our behavior or? Mm-hmm. Okay. The reason I picked it is because one of the things that you see throughout the Queen's Gambit is that there's a lot of decision making. There's a lot of things centered around how Beth feels about herself when she realizes she has an addiction. So what this model is looking at is that how does someone change their negative behavior into a positive behavior in terms of an addictive behavior. That was a lot of words. I'm not even sure if I caught all of that. (laughs) So there's different stages, basically stating like, you know, whenever you do have like a problem, for example, you're going to go through stages of how you realize it. And then how do you maintain not continuing with that addictive behavior? Oh, okay. Okay. I got it. 
Okay. So there is six stages. Okay. So the first stage is pre-contemplation. And it's part of the stages of change model. And I don't want to bore you guys, but if you want to know and look it up, it's by Prochanska and colleagues. Okay, and it's used a lot with people who have an addiction. So if you're working with people in therapy, you kind of understand this model and you understand what the person's going through and what stages they're in. Because if you keep telling someone who's, in, you know, who's addicted to something, well, just change your behavior. Well, if they're not in the stage that they need to to change their behavior, you're not going to get through to them, basically. Right, because that kind of reminds me, you know, this is like a way watered down version, but this reminds me of our goals episode, which was Mm -hmm. like our first one where you were like talking about smart goals and how the R means relevant and relevant means, okay, is the goal relevant to you? Because if it's relevant to you and it really matters, that means you're like ready for change and you're ready to start pursuing that goal seriously. Yes, that is so perfect. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Yes, yes. So again, this pre-contemplation stage is the first stage. And basically, this is the denial stage. So people are not really acknowledging that they have an addiction or they have a problem behavior and they don't see that they need to change. So in terms of the Queen's Gambit, I would say a good example of that is when Beth's friend, Harry Beltic, comes to her house several times because he's super worried about her. And he can't seem to get in contact with her. But finally, they get reunited. (laughs) And there's this one scene in a parking lot where he makes it very clear that she's slowly killing herself. And he knows this because his dad was an alcoholic. And Beth became very defensive. And she tells him that he does not know what he's talking about. So she's definitely in denial. Oh, yeah, this was such an intense scene. She went on this binge and she doesn't even meet, you know, this tournament she's supposed to go to. She's very irritable. And I remember like she wants to smoke at the place where they're holding the tournament. They're like, you can't smoke Mm -hmm. in here. So then she gets pissed and that's when she goes to the parking lot and then, you know, she sees (laughs) Harry. So then she gets more pissed. Yeah, and then she gets more pissed because he's like, You've got a problem. And she's like, You don't know what you're talking about. And then they kind of have this little falling out. And it's really sad because, you know, he's just a good friend and he wants to reach out to her. He wants to be a, a friend and just be there for her. But she takes it the wrong way. She does. And I thought that was, yeah, very sweet of him, very compassionate. So definitely that is some denial experienced by Beth. The second stage is contemplation. So this is an interesting stage, but basically what this stage is getting at is that the person is just not ready to make the change. They know deep down there's something that they're doing is wrong that's causing them harm. And they want to kind of change, but they're just not ready. So they're contemplating this over and over and over again. So they contemplate saying, am I an addict? Or do I really have a problem? And they go back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, I think when we see this particular stage in the show depicted, it's when Jolene comes to visit her. And they're mm-hmm. like in the bathroom and, you know, they're just, you know, doing girl stuff, getting ready. And then Jolene sees those green pills in Beth's bathroom and she's like wait like you're still taking those like what are those doing here like that was from when we were kids you know yeah Beth kind of realizes like the significance of that moment like oh she caught on to me because I know I know that this is wrong 
Yeah, I definitely think that's a very good, like, symbolic episode of, like, her maybe, they don't show her thought processes, but you can tell from her reaction, she's like, wait a second, she has a point. <laughs> this is, like, you know, from my childhood, like, why am I taking these, et cetera, et cetera. Right. The next stage is preparation. And basically, this is where now you're getting ready to change. So once you've contemplated it and you understand that there is some negative behavior that you're doing, then you're thinking about things that you want to do to not do that behavior anymore. So I think a good example of this is when Beth begins to see that the way she is using drugs affects her ability to perform when she goes to that tournament in Russia. And this kind of happens after that scene with Jolene where she realizes and contemplates that she does have a problem. And Jolene kind of helps her confront her past by taking her to an orphanage that she was at in the prior, I guess, first three episodes. Mm -hmm. And also helps her deal with a recent death that she experienced too. Yeah, Mr. Scheibel passed away, her mentor, the guy that taught her how to play chess. That must have been like so sad because he really kind of paved the way for her right he really did he taught her the rules of the game he taught her good sportsmanship and then honestly i found him to be like the father that she never had oh yeah definitely yeah like a mentor someone who was genuinely cared about her yeah and you know what's funny is that like neither of them are very touchy-feely at all you know like they can't show They're affection not. for each other <laughs> and uh i remember when she's like you know a child prodigy and they want to it's like the newspaper wants to take a picture of her and like cover her for something um she's like nine and they have to take a picture together and it's like really awkward and then she finds that picture like in his little workspace because the um I don't know, what is she, like the principal or the the headmaster or whatever? Head, the headmistress. Headmistress, yeah. yeah. She mm -hmm. takes her to the workspace, and you can see in Mr. Scheibel's workspace area, like, he has every newspaper clipping of Beth. I think that must have really validated her in the sense that, you know, there was someone out there that, you know, cared about her, you know? Yeah, and then I totally think that really contributed to her reaching that stage of preparation and determination like mm -hmm. really helping her get ready to change because she had that validation that someone was always out there like looking out for her mm -hmm. beautifully said I believe that too I feel like she had to process his death and what he meant to her and how that relates to her success as well so that definitely helped her prepare to change her behaviors in a more positive way. So the fourth stage is action stage. Mm -hmm. They also call it the willpower stage. So with this stage, um, it's very simple. It's like you're actually taking physical action towards not doing that addictive behavior anymore. So I would say the most apparent or most obvious one is when she throws away the pill bottles in the toilet. Yeah, I remember that scene. It was really powerful. And then the stage after that, so once you have some action, you're doing something about it, now you have to maintain it. So the next stage is the main maintenance stage. So this is where you're actively, you know, thinking about, okay, I need to do this every day. I need to make sure that, you know, I don't drink or I don't do X, Y, and Z 
or I don't do things that will make me become triggered to engage in that addictive behavior. So what do you think would be a maintenance example for her? You know, after she leaves the States and she goes to Russia, I remember this is the second time where she's offered drinks by a waiter in a restaurant. And Mm -hmm. uh, even though she has like a service bar in her hotel room, she still maintains her sobriety. So she declines the drinks. She doesn't engage in the service bar that's in her room. So I feel like Mm -hmm. that's an example of maintaining the behavior change. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. So it's hard to do. You have to actively think about it. It's like, okay, what am I going to do to make sure that I don't do this? And then finally, um, the last stage is relapse. And I know Kristen was like, what? (laughs) Yeah, you can see my face. I'm like, wait, why is relapse the last stage? We already went through all this positive, you know, journey (laughs) and change and blah, blah, blah. And then what the fuck? Why is relapse at the end? I thought relapse would be at the beginning. Right, right. So the idea behind this is that it kind of provides compassion for people who have an addiction problem. And knowing that it's very difficult to be abstinent, to be completely drug-free, whatever, alcohol-free. So there could be instances where you do relapse. And that's, you know, okay, it does happen. But you will go through the cycle again. So you're going to go through the preparation phase, contemplate, and you have to go through the cycle again. And I guess the hope is like, you know, you're going to have less relapses. But what the model basically is saying is it's kind of unrealistic to say that you're never going to relapse. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. At the end, we don't see any relapses. But at the end, I also think we see more emotional support than ever for her. Mm -hmm. Because mm-hmm. her, you know, she had that emotional support from Jolene to confront the demons of her past. Mm-hmm. And then when she goes to Russia, even though she kind of like wasn't on the best terms with her friend Benny and, you know, Harry mm-hmm. and some other competitors that she met along the way who she played in tournaments with, they all were friends with her. But, you know, as she would go on these these uh, benders, like you said... Mm-hmm. She would mm-hmm. kind of like lose touch with them or, you know, not not really treat them very well. And you would think mm-hmm. like, oh, they're not going to be your friend anymore. But then it's beautiful to see that they all like rally for yes. to support her and they help her come up with strategies to like beat this grandmaster in Russia. And so you're like really rooting for her and you're just so happy that her friends came together to support her. So that was definitely beautiful to see like at the end of the series. Yeah, that, that was probably my favorite part of the series, just seeing that the level of support that she was truly, you know, had these amazing relationships, people really cared about her. And I would say that really kind of helped her stay sober, you know. Maybe she grows up a little bit more and she realizes that she doesn't, she has more to risk. She doesn't want to risk those relationships again. Mm-hmm. Maybe she realizes that she doesn't want to take them for granted and that her sobriety kind of depends on how well she's going to do as a chess player mm-hmm. um that also that 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 match at the end in russia because spoiler alert she does win and now okay <laughs> she's like yeah. you know the best chess player in the whole world i think it was validating for her because she also knew okay i don't need the drugs to play well i don't need the drugs mm-hmm. to win so i don't know i mean it, I, I think like a lot of stuff comes together, emotional support, um, self-efficacy, 
one of my favorite words to say. Yay. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you brought that up. I mean, I do think both the things that you said, so social support and self-efficacy definitely have a role to play in overcoming addiction. But if you guys want to know, there is psychological research that notes that the more emotional support you have from someone, the less likely you're going to relapse. Interestingly, also, people who give more advice or are more giving emotional support to someone who is also an addict or has an addictive behavior, they're also less likely to relapse. So that's why they have those programs where you have like a like a buddy, you know what I'm talking about? Like a sponsor, yeah. Yeah. So that's very helpful because the sponsor is giving you emotional support, right? So that's helping you, but it's actually helping them at the same time for them to stay sober as well. You know, I never realized that it was a mutually beneficial relationship. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess I thought that by the time, you know, someone who was struggling with addiction came to the point where they were you know, able to become a sponsor that, okay, we're done, you know, I never have to deal with that again. Like, Mm -hmm. so now I'm going to help someone else. But, you know, I think maybe that's a common misconception that, okay, once you become sober once, like you're good, you're never going to relapse again. Or if you've been sober for like 17 years, you're never going to relapse again. I mean, just working with people who have had addiction and I've had family members who have had addiction as well. It's it's not when you're sober, you're done, one and done. It's it's a continuous journey and process to stay sober. It's just it's, you're going to always have to work at it. So I think that's why this is really seen in research that, you know, having that relationship, you know, a sponsor really helps not only the person that you're helping, but also the person who is providing the help too at the same time. And, you know, off the top of my head, I think uh, there are other pop culture examples that depict this relationship, like in Grey's Anatomy, right? Mm-hmm. Richard, he's an alcoholic. and he Oh, goes, yeah, 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 yeah. And then Derek's sister, Amelia, Amelia Shepard. Oh, she's a, yeah, I think she's a sponsor, too. And she isn't she the sponsor to her adoptive daughter or something oh, like that? Yeah, or? something like that. So, yeah, yeah they really do go deep into addiction that's why i love richard's storyline so much it's so complex i know it's so complex um but the last thing i wanted to touch on is you said self-efficacy so Mm -hmm. when people are not i guess having the greatest self-efficacy they have low self-efficacy where they're feeling like i'm never gonna be sober or i can't do this i'm gonna relapse again when they have that feeling when they have more emotional support they're more likely to overcome the relapses, even if they have low self-efficacy. So emotional support is very important. Yeah, and then just to remind everyone what the definition of self-efficacy is, it's basically this feeling that you have within yourself that, okay, I can do this, I can accomplish this, mm-hmm. I'm, I am capable, mm-hmm. and so that's what self-efficacy is. So I can imagine if someone who's struggling with addiction feels that, they don't feel that at all. They don't have that confidence or esteem within themselves to conquer or to achieve that they would just remain in this spiral. I just think that's a great thing that even if you are feeling that way, if you, even if you have support, you can still get through it, even if you don't think you're capable. That's so beautiful. I know. <laughs> Oh my god, that reminds me of Euphoria. If you guys do watch Euphoria, they came out with these two special episodes that are like, they were shot in during COVID, like during the lockdown. And um, they're super intimate. And Rue is talking to her sponsor, Ali, 
And uh, she's in that moment. She's like, Mm -hmm. I can't do this. I'm going to be a loser forever. I hate myself. You know, the drugs are the only thing that keep me from wanting to kill myself because when I'm sober, I want to kill myself. And Mm -hmm. she doesn't believe in herself at all. And Ali is always like with her. He's always like, no, like I'm here for you. You can do this. Like you are not a bad person. It was just like a super intimate episode. Like I just really, really recommend euphoria as as a show that depicts addiction addiction that's a perfect example and i wouldn't be surprised if we do an episode on euphoria in the future i know right such a good show Uh, but you know so is the queen's gambit and i'm glad that we went that we went with the queen's gambit this time around with addiction but you know it's an it's a topic that is going to continue to be relevant with the opioid crisis and Mm -hmm. so much more. You know, addiction, I feel like, is something that people are starting to talk more about. They're starting to say, you know, like, this is something that affects more people than you think. Mm -hmm. And it's becoming more normalized to talk about it. So, you know, I'm really pleased with the way that the social climate is kind of working in the favor, you know, of just talking more about addiction. So I, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think that this is like a one and done topic for us. No, no, we we can probably cover addiction again, maybe using, you know, a different, you know, TV show, movie, and just taking a different spin or looking at different ways that addiction, addiction can impact people. Okay. So if you like this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe on whatever listening platform that you're on. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at psychwinepop. And don't forget to also email us at psychwinepop at gmail.com if you have any topic suggestions. We look forward to hearing from you. And thank you, thank you for leaving comments. If you love us, you know, go ahead and subscribe to us. Leave us a comment or review. We appreciate it and we love it and it just makes our day. And yeah. Okay, do I get to say it? Yeah. <laughs> Until next time. <laughs> do 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 do. <laughs>